Robin Williams. We miss you, buddy. This man that brought so much joy into our life through the medium of laughter. I am embarrassed to admit I never saw Jumanji until this last summer with my children for the first time. Oh my gosh. You know, um, he's on all of our minds again because of, there's a new documentary from HBO about his life and I just can't help but think of him as an archetype for our cultural moment. Behind that smile, and he had such a great smile, there was a deep well of sadness. And whether it's a Robin Williams or the suicide of an Anthony Bourdain or a music video like This Is America about the dark underbelly of the entertainment industry, in particular the experience of the black community in our country, or just the stats on antidepressants, which are through the roof, up something like 65% in not that many years, multi-billion dollar industry, even in our city, which this time of year, I mean, our city's just the overlap of heaven on earth. But it's just about three months that it's like that. The rest of the year, we rank year after year as the most depressed city in the entire country, right? Whatever it is, behind the smile, the singing, the dancing, the noise, the comedic tone of our nation is a deep well of sadness. For a nation built around the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, man, it feels like chasing after the wind. And even in the church, behind that smile, hi, how are you, great, singing, clap, clap, clap. For a lot of people, we live with a low-grade anxiety and chronic depression that just we acclimate to as the new normal. And a lot of people think that Jesus has little or nothing to say on the subject of happiness. A lot of us imagine Jesus kind of like the Catholic painting from the Sistine Chapel, right? He's just pale white, never mind that he was a Jew who grew up in Africa. He, he's bone thin, never mind that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And above all, in picture after picture, he is sad. Never mind that there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah from Isaiah that said he would be, quote, anointed with the oil of joy more than all of his companions. My wannabe Eugene Peterson translation of the Hebrew is he would be the happiest person alive. And did you know that quote, that prophecy, is quoted by the writers of the New Testament multiple times? People that knew Jesus firsthand, so many of them said the same thing. He was. He was the happiest person alive. Yet most of us would not think to look to Jesus for advice on how to live a happy life. For Jesus, we look to him on other stuff. For happiness, well, we look to, I don't know, the Dalai Lama or mindfulness or Tal Ben-Shahar's positive psychology class at Harvard, which, by the way, is on YouTube now. Have fun with that. But not to Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, I think of that magnum opus, his book, Orthodoxy, and he ends by writing about how Jesus never concealed his tears, but he wept with an open face, but the one thing he concealed was his mirth, end of one of the best books in the last century. But is Jesus' mirth hidden? If so, I would argue it's hidden in plain sight. Let's start off with a story about eating and drinking from the life of Jesus. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mom was there, and Jesus and his apprentices had also been invited to the wedding. He's the kind of guy you would want to have around at a party. 
when, for this reason alone, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Hint, hint, you gotta love the passive aggressive thing. Thanks, mom. Um, Woman, and that's a term of endearment in the original language, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Been waiting for my mom to tell our servants that for years. <laughs> Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, I love that. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now they did so, and I imagine Jesus in the background here with the mischievous smile, right? The master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, hey, come here. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Just word of the wise, next time you plan a party, there you have it but you have saved the best until now. And I love that in the story, the bridegroom just takes credit for all of this. It's fantastic. <laughs> 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Let's parse out that last summary line. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, the story that we just read, was the first of the signs. A sign is a pointer to reality through which he revealed, so it's a revelation, his glory. Now, when you hear the word glory, don't think of fame or celebrity status as in the cliche, give God the glory. Glory in the library of scripture is God's presence and his person. So think of the glory of God in the Old Testament, in the temple in Jerusalem or out in the desert, which manifested as a cloud. That cloud was his presence. When the cloud was there, God was there for sake of argument. And it was his person, his personality, the origin point of his voice. It was what God was like. So this story of water to wine is a pointer to the reality, it's a revelation of what God is like. Listen carefully. He is the kind of God who first off is at the top of the invite list for a party and he goes to that party and he stays there for a very long time and when they have run out of wine, what does he do? He makes more and he makes the good stuff. None of this two buck chuck nonsense, right? It's that out of the cellar, dust off the bottle. That's what God is like, the sommelier of the kingdom of heaven. Is it any wonder that joy is one of the central teachings of Jesus as the Gospel of John goes on? For example, here's just a line or two, John 15. I have told you this so that my joy, I have so much of it, may be in you and that your joy may be complete, or that last word can be translated full to the brim, or John 16. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete, or all the way full. Or 17, I say these things while I am still in the world so that my apprentices may have the full measure of my joy within them. From Jesus, we learn two very important realities on the subject of joy. First is this, just think with me, very simple. 
God is the most joyful being in all of the universe. To recap theology 101, Jesus is the embodiment of God. In Jesus, we see what God is like. Put another way, Jesus is like God, and even more importantly, God is like Jesus. And Jesus is happy. Quote, anointed with the oil of gladness more than all of his companions, or the happiest person alive, end quote, multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus was the happiest person alive. Ergo, God himself is the happiest person alive. I mean, just think about it. On page one of the Bible, we read about God singing the universe into existence. And the lyric to that chorus is, it is good. Sea, land, it is good. Tree, woodpecker, forest park, it is good. Infant child, music, the melody of the wind, it is very good. It's as if you get the sense reading Genesis 1 that it's like God, this being at the center of the universe, is so full of pent-up love and joy and peace that it just has to leak out and overflow into the Andromeda galaxy into an oak tree and into an infant child, into kombucha on tap. It just has to come out. At the center, I just discovered kombucha, by the way. I was a hater, I'm not gonna lie. I was a hater for a lot of years. And then Paul, I don't know if you're here, went on the men's retreat, he started a kombucha company. I had a taste to be the nice pastor and I haven't stopped. Um, it's amazing. At the cent- My point is, at the center of the universe is a God who is happy. Little exercise for you, just close your eyes for a minute. You don't have to, we're not a cult, this is Portland, you'll do your own thing no matter what. But (laughs) just close your eyes for a minute, just take a second. Think of the most beautiful place you've ever been. You have it? Okay, two or three of you, just shout it out nice and loud. Where's the, where? Trillium Lake, not far away, fantastic. Hawaii, where in Hawaii? Oh, Kauai, I was gonna say. I vote for Kauai if, if, if it's a vote, right? Hands, where? Girl, girl trip? Oh, it's a place. Oh, fantastic. It's not, it's not like double entendre there, girl trip. It's a place. I've never heard of it. Fantastic. Where else? One more. Venice. Anybody been to Glacier National Park? Yeah, anybody been to Zion? Yeah, Swiss Alps, anybody? Uh, it was privileged, sorry, I apologize. What can I say? Wow, now, okay. Now, close your eyes again. Second exercise. Now, think of the happiest moment of your life. Or just one or two at the top of the list. Just take a moment. Okay, I'll go first the birth of my son Jude. All three were amazing, but it just gets more work after the first one. But <laughs> I just, I will never forget that day. What's another one? Shout it out, nice and loud. Wedding day. Wedding day. How long now? Four years. Four years, come on. Did somebody say Disneyland? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Star Wars land next year. Put it in the calendar. What else? Happiest moment of your life? Engagement. Engagement. Are you even, who said that? Yeah, are you, when's the date? September 14th, fantastic, congratulations. One more, what's another, happiest day of your life? Quitting, my job. Quitting your job. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I love it. Now, okay, stay with me. Whatever God's relationship to time and space is, and theologians, believe it or not, debate that, but whatever it is, it's very different from mine and from yours. Think for sure there is no place that God is not. Draw to mind the most beautiful place you've ever been, Kauai, Cape Kiwanda at the Oregon coast, Trillium Lake, Girl trip, what was it called? Girl, whatever it is, <laughs> that amazing. Draw to mind, God is there right now. Think about the feeling that you get when you were there, right? Think of the happiest moment of your life, your wedding day, your engagement, you got out from the man at your job, whatever it is, that God is there in that moment right now. A few weeks ago, I was over at Cape Kiwanda, and if you know, you go right past the sign that says, don't go past the sign, and you walk out to the edge of the Cape with your three children, and you're, <laughs> you're teaching all sorts of things at that point. And we were out there, it was a beautiful summer day, I was in, well into my vacation, and we were whale watching, and they were out there a ways, you know, and this gigantic blue whale comes right in, if you've ever been there, to that lagoon at the base of the cliff, and we're staring down at it, and for 20 minutes, it just plays in the water, up, down, does its whale thing, the spout, like whatever, the, is it an arm, is it a flipper, I don't know what it is, but, it was, and I'm there with my three beautiful children, with my lovely wife, on a vacation, on a sunny, warm, it was the joy in that moment. God is in that place, he is in that moment right now. Feeling all of that delight and wonder and happiness and excitement of all of the most beautiful times and most beautiful places in the universe and down through human history. Now, you're thinking people, and so you know, well, that means the flip side is also true, right? If God is at Cape Kwanda right now, then he's also at a work camp in North Korea, or in a killing field with ISIS, or in a slum outside of Kolkata. And if God was there at my wedding day, then he's also at Auschwitz in 1945, and Hiroshima in 1945. He's there feeling all of that pain and grief and trauma, and yes, he is. Hence that prophecy from Isaiah, before it said that he was anointed with the oil of gladness, first it said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, or that can be translated no stranger to suffering, both and. One of the things you realize as you age is that there aren't good seasons and bad seasons in life, there's life, and there's always good and there's always bad. When I was younger, I think I felt like, well, there's a good year or a bad year. And at a birthday, I, you would ask a friend, how was your year? Was it a good year or was it a bad year? And there's some truth in that for sure. But the older I get, the more I feel like the answer to that question is yes. There's always things over which I feel sad, disappointment, let down, grief even. And yet there are always things for which I just feel grateful pinch myself, I can't believe this is my life. And God feels both, just the way that you and I feel both, but here's the difference. God, whatever his relationship to space and time is, has enough of a vantage point that I think he is far more aware than we are that all sadness is passing away, but joy is forever. Right there, think of it this way. You know how we talk about God, the scriptures write that God is love. They never say that God is wrath, but yet we read all sorts of stories about the wrath of God. 
But wrath is a subcategory of love, right? It is the emotionally healthy response of a father or a mother to evil in the life of a child, of a son or of a daughter. When Jude does something evil or when evil is done to Jude, I feel anger, not in spite of my love for Jude, but because of my love. I would argue the same is true with joy and sadness. God is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. You read about that triumvirate all the way through the New Testament. God is joy. You never read that God is sadness, yet you read all sorts of stories about the sadness of God. And Jesus wept and he broke down in tears. But I would argue that the sadness of God is a subcategory of the joy of God. It is the emotionally healthy response of a father who has nothing but the full measure of joy for his son or his daughter, but who is up against evil. But God has this vantage point over the horizon to the day at Jesus' return when all evil is snuffed out forever, and in that moment, God will revert back to his true nature, to his baseline emotional and relational disposition of love and joy and peace. God will never get angry again and he will never be sad ever again. Why? Because God is the most not only loving but joyful, happy, pleasant, fun to be around, delightful being in all of the universe, whether you believe that or not. Secondly, from Jesus, we learn that God's plan for your life and for mine is to grow and mature you into the kind of person who is as joyful as he is. Hence Jesus' prayer for all of his apprentices, which was more than just a prayer, it was a vision for your future and for mine. Quote, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. That's what the word joyful means, full of joy. Do you ever feel that way? Like, even if not on a regular basis, even if it's once a year or once a month or once a week, Do you ever feel so full of joy that it's like if there was a gas gauge like on the joy meter of your heart or whatever, like it's full, there's no more, you don't have any more capacity for more joy and it just has to leak out of you in a smile, a chuckle, a dance, whatever it is. Total secret, don't tell anybody. I um, hate dancing and when I say I hate dancing, I mean I loathe, detest, with a righteous indignation dancing, all right? It's just not my thing, yes, I'm in therapy. And um, I'm home Thursday afternoon, my family's all gone for the day, I just finished writing this teaching, it was a beautiful summer day, I had my day off and my Sabbath ahead of me that I was really looking forward to, and I put on this new single, Falling Water by Maggie Roberts, it's amazing, and I just all of a sudden, don't tell anybody, I had to go over, close the blinds in my living room, and just (laughs) dance to Sonos right there. Like just, I just started dancing to a female singer-songwriter. I could not help myself. Don't tell anybody, all right? I promise. Jesus' plan for your life and for mine, listen carefully, is to grow and mature you into the kind of person for whom that experience where you just overflow with joy where that is your new normal. Now listen carefully, very carefully. Joy, here's the thing where I think a lot of us go wrong. Joy isn't just an emotion. It is an overall condition of the heart. Hour-long teaching on a biblical theology of the heart in one sentence. Your heart in the biblical literature 
is a trifecta of your thinking and your feeling and your will in the language of psychology or in our language, what you want. So your heart is what you think about, it's what you feel, and it's what you desire. Jesus' plan isn't just to get you to go to church a lot and read your Bible every single morning and to dump joy on you in those moments, right? Not that he can't do that, not that he doesn't do that on a regular basis, but that's not his MO, that's not his way, right? Um, I know a lot of people who are waiting around for Jesus to like drop a joy bomb on them or whatever. It's like, like you know, water balloons. I have three kids. In summer, I know it's bad for the environment. I'm sorry. But like the water balloon thing, it's like I think we kind of imagine like, okay, I wake up in the morning, I read my Bible, and Jesus up in heaven, he's like, joy bomb, boom, hit you. Oh, you're at church. Oh, you're at the seven. Oh, you're in the joy bomb, boom. Like, you, you know, and you're hit. Like, and it's all passive, not active and you just receive it. And there is some truth in that for sure. Nine times out of 10, the most joyful time of my day is first thing in the morning before my family's up, just me and Jesus, my Bible open in the quiet. It's all downhill after that, you know? (laughs) And I know, seriously, this morning, I had the best time. Sunday mornings are my favorite because everybody is drunk with the hangover and sleeping in in our city, at least in my neighborhood. But I love, I don't love that. I love the quiet. (laughs) And we have this little front porch and it's summertime right now and I'm out and I was drinking this new Colombian from Heart that was unfreaking believable one of the best cups of coffee I've ever had and I'm just sitting there and it's sunny and I'm outside and it's beautiful and it's quiet and it was so great. <laughs> the house right next to me was pretty close. And what time did the World Cup start this morning? Eight o'clock? It must have been early. Right at 11 o'clock I heard like drunk guys screaming really loud. So every five minutes it'd just be like wind of prayer. Yeah! Like it was so great through this open window and I just thought this is my life. This is my life. And you just you ever have that sense where you just are overwhelmed with joy from heaven itself. But listen, that's not actually Jesus' main agenda for your life. That's great. When those moments come, enjoy it. But Jesus has far more ambition for your life. He doesn't want to just dump joy on you when you read your Bible a lot or pray or go to church. He wants to grow and mature you into the kind of person who is joyful. The overall condition of your heart, the fabric of your character, your personality, who you are through apprenticeship to the happiest person alive, you have become a happy, joyful, pleasant, at peace man or woman, not just when you're reading your Bible or at church, that stuff's great, but all the time when you're stuck in traffic, when you're on email 947, when you're there, when you're in a hard conversation, just somebody who is joyful by nature. Because of that, cultivating a heart, an overall condition of your inner man or woman that is joyful is at the center of your apprenticeship to Jesus. Now, how do we do this? Let's shift gears. The short answer is through what Richard Foster and other teachers of the way call the spiritual discipline of celebration. Now that, that language is not used in the New Testament, but the idea is there's a command that runs all the way through the New Testament. It starts with Jesus, 
and then it's repeated by pretty much all of the New Testament writers, in particular Paul, it's a favorite of Paul's, and it's this, rejoice. In Greek, it's this word kairete, can you say that? And it's the verb form of the noun joy, right? So more literally, to rejoice is to joy. However, a number of scholars argue that a better translation is celebrate, for a number of reasons, most of the time, um, the command is, if not all of the time, the command is in the plural, not in the singular. It's something that you do not alone by yourself, but with a community. And the semantic domain of the word has this idea of a meal or a feast or a party. So like you celebrate, you throw a party, you feast together as a community, you rejoice. Now, most, either way, most of us don't think of joy as a discipline at all. We don't think that we have any responsibility in joy, really. We just kind of sit there and wait for the water balloon from heaven or something like that. But it doesn't work that way. Richard Foster writes this. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Read that out loud with me if you want. It, that's really cultish, but let's do it. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living, right? Consciously chosen way. And the beauty of this way, of this spiritual discipline of celebration, is that it's not rocket science at all. It's very simple. There are two basic steps, thinking and living. Or put another way, first, set your mind on joy. As we all know, you can't will joy. Joy is more than an emotion, but not less. And you can't will an emotion. There's no light switch on off. There's no like, turn off the sad switch, turn on the happy switch. Right? It doesn't exist. Turn off the stressed out switch, turn on the chill. Like it doesn't exist. There's no, if you have a light switch, please give me the podcast, right? But we don't have control over our emotions. Because of that, many people have to live at the mercy of their emotions, live a kind of victim life at their emotions, live the kind of casualty of their biochemical reactions. But we do have control over our mind, our thought life, what we set our attention on, what we give our mental real estate to. And as a general rule, your feelings follow your thinking. This is pretty basic stuff. If you right now think about how horrible your boss is and the injustice of corporate America or whatever and this slight or this thing he or she said, what do you start to feel? Anger. If you start to think about the dystopian future where Google's AI takes over the world, right, against Elon Musk's wishes, or you think about North Korea, or you think about Trump has a button, really, he has a button on his desk. If you start, what do you feel? Anxiety, right? If you, in the same way, if you think about God and how good he is, how at the center of the universe is a being that just is the source of pure love and joy and peace. And then you start to think about all that is good and beautiful tr and true in this universe that you call home. What do you start to feel? Joy. Because your thinking follows your think, your, I'm sorry, your feeling follows your thinking. 
So you can't will joy, but you can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable byproduct. Now we see this more than anywhere else in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Feel free to turn there if you want to Philippians chapter four. If not, it's up on the wall behind me. So Paul, well-known line, Philippians chapter four, verse four, near the end of the letter, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always, or celebrate in the Lord always. And then he has, I will say it again because you all need to hear it. Rejoice, celebrate, right? So there's the command to joy, right? To cultivate this in the overall condition of your heart. But then next he has a few exercises for how you and I grow and mature into joyful people. Take a look at six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, read this out loud with me, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That can be translated meditate on such things or fill your mind with those kinds of things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Peace in the New Testament doesn't translate well from Greek to English. It's way more than the idea of how we think of peace as non-anxiety. It's more that and joy. It's the sense of a pervasive sense of well-being. Do this, and the God of a pervasive sense of well-being will be with you. Now, notice there are three-ish steps right in here for how you, or exercises, for how you and I are to set our mind on joy. If you're taking notes really fast, the first is to surrender the illusion of control over to God. Right, and six again, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fret, don't stress out about anything, major, minor, but in every situation, doesn't matter what it is, by prayer and by by petition, just present it all over to God, give it all over to God. If you wanna become a joyful person, you have to come to the place where you release and you let go of and you surrender the illusion of control and you just release outcomes to God. And what happens, happens. It's not this weird like name it, claim it kind of thing where you just believe that nothing bad will happen to you. That's just a recipe for disillusionment and disenchantment. It's far deeper than that. It's where you say, no matter what happens to me, if what I fear happens or doesn't happen, either way, I'm okay because I have life with God. And that doesn't mean that you don't grieve or lament or process. Doesn't mean that at all. It just means The great end, and for most of us, this is decades in the future in our maturity, but the great end is where you come to, long before this was a catchphrase in the Buddhist literature or the mindfulness literature, ancient followers of Jesus, St. John of the Cross, Teresa, Vivalia, were all using this word and this idea of detachment. You have to just detach where your happiness and your just emotional life in general and spiritual life is not based on your circumstances. 
And it doesn't mean that you don't care about what happens or doesn't happen. It just means that you have life with God and you release out. You do the right thing. You pray. You give your anxiety. And then you just release. You can't control life. You can't control the world. You can't control other people. Don't try to. The end result of that is just manipulation and anger. So you just release control. You do your part. You pray. And you surrender. Secondly, give thanks. That's the next line, right? In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, give all of this over to God. You just work gratitude into every fiber of your being. You thank God for anything, everything, massive, she said yes, or whatever the thing is, or just, trust me, that Colombian coffee this morning, I feel like I'm still practicing gratitude for that. Just, I can't wait to wake up in the morning, right? Just whatever it is, you just work gratitude into your mind's new normal. And then third, and listen carefully, focus your attention on all that is good in the world. If you're anything like me or the other seven plus billion people on the planet, your mind gravitates toward the negative, not the positive. The bad, not the good, all that's wrong in your life and in our world, not all that's right. There's all sorts of science behind this um, that basically says what biblical theology has been saying for a very long time, that we're messed up. And we're messed up in our mind above every other aspect of our person. And one of the areas that we're messed up, call it sin, call it neurobiology, call it the fall, call it whatever you want, is that we have this penchant where 10 things happen to you in a day, nine of them are fabulous, one of them's bad, what do you think about? The one bad thing. 10 words are spoken to you, nine of them are a blessing, one of them's a bit snarky, what do you think about that night? The one, there's just something about us, right? Our brain is all skewed. And because of that, often we fill our mind with the exact opposite of this list here, right? Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. N.T. Wright in his commentary in Philippians chapter four writes this. The command in verse eight to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. So it's not just your brain and your sinfulness and your neurobiology that's against you. It's capitalism itself, right? Read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and, there's our word, what? Celebrate. I love that. The point is that we have to discipline our minds to focus on the good in our life and our world. A lot of this, honestly, just has to do with how you start your day. I can't, I don't want to sound legalistic here at all, don't misread me, but I cannot think of a worse way to start your day than sleep with your phone next to your bed, set an alarm clock on it, wake up to an alarm, that's just a bad start right there, (laughs) and then roll over and check your phone. Text messages, email, oh, the boss is already up, social media, oh, she said, oh, he said, and then the news feed, feed. 
right? What did he do today? The, the running question every day. What did he do, right? I can't think of a better recipe for misery. One of the most important spiritual disciplines in all of my life with Jesus has to do with my phone. Um, my wife and I both do this. We turn our phones off at 8.30 at night. They go into literally into a black box and a cupboard and we close it and it's there. We bought like old school analog alarm clock forever. It was fantastic. It's like a nice little thing. I'm like, ah, I love you. Next to my bed, no phone in the bedroom and um, I don't turn it back on until 8.30 the next morning after I've been up and I have spent time not only with Colombian coffee, which is very important, but it's another spiritual discipline, but, um, but in prayer and in the scriptures. Then and only then am I ready for all of that barrage of information. I say that in particular to you digital natives. I mean, just hear me. Don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium and your newsfeed set your view of the world. Like, do not live at the mercy of your updates on your stupid phone. It does not work for you. It works for somebody in Silicon Valley. It's designed to addict you and distract you, to steal you from the joy that God has for you in each and every moment. But I can FaceTime my mom. Okay, then FaceTime your mom and then put it away. And FaceTime life. Ooh, that was nice. That was on the fly. (laughs) FaceTime life. Hashtag. I think I just started a new one, right? And your newsfeed in particular, without, I might get an email on this one, but remember that freedom of the press is a myth. Yes, um, by the grace of God, we have freedom from, the press has freedom from the control of Washington, D.C., for the most part. Okay, that's great. But that is a bit of a myth. It's a smoke and mirrors. It is still in bondage to the bottom line. This is capitalism, people. It's not like for the greater good. I'm not, that's not a slam on journalists. That's what I wanted to be when I was younger. My point is, this is about money. It's about the bottom line, and the reality is due to neurobiology, due to, if you want to call it original sin, whatever, bad news sells at 10 times the rate of good news. And if you, the only way to top bad news is to like add something clickbaity about a celebrity to it, right? So if you just want to drive up your page views on newsfeed of choice and thereby drive up advertising and make more money, all you need to do is a little article with like a picture of Ben Affleck's back tattoo or something. Done. You just made money hand over fist. My point is the press is not free. Your morning newsfeed is not an accurate picture of the world. Can you imagine what you would think of the world if all you had was just your experience in our city and no connection to any of that? Your morning news feed is curated not only with a socio-political agenda in mind that is thoroughly secular, and if your feed is anything like mine, I pay some money to get a decent one, but still, it is very progressive, over-the-top progressive, with massive assumptions about reality that I believe are not true. Not only that, but it's curated with an eye to all that is evil in the world and very little of what is good because basically that's where the money is. Now, don't misread me. I am not saying turn a blind eye to injustice or just enjoy your middle class or up lifestyle in a great, safe coastal city. That's not what I'm, don't mishear me. Hopefully you know me better than that. All I'm saying is don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium and your newsfeed set your view of the world. That is a surefire recipe for anything and everything other than joy. Mark Sayers and our friends at Red Church in Melbourne have this little saying, win the day, 
What they mean by that is they have a tradition in the church where if you're part of that church, in the morning, first thing, you put your phone at the other end of your apartment or dorm or house or whatever, and you win the day. You start the day in the scriptures and in prayer. And you let prayer set your emotional equilibrium, and you let the library of scripture set your view of what the world is, what it isn't, and what it means to be human in it. Now, whether you adopt that practice or not, and I highly recommend you do, I do it, I love it. Whether you win the day, or you win the night, or you win your lunch break, whatever it is that you win, my point is don't let the enemy sabotage the movement in your heart toward joy. God has so much more for you. Now, rant over. To recap, how do you set your mind on joy? Very simple, you surrender the illusion of control, you give thanks, and you focus your attention on all that is good. This is how you set your mind on joy. It's how you curate your thought life to align with that of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you do this over time, there's no switch, but over time you will become a joyful person. Secondly, you move your body into joy. So your body is the locus point of your spirituality or your relationship to the spirit of God. You don't have a body, you are one. Your mind and your body are all a part of who you are. And Jesus is in the process of healing all of you, mind and body. Notice what Paul said at the end of that little exercise. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, in my body, in my morning routine, in my weekday life, put it into practice and the God of a pervasive sense of well-being will be with you. Meaning follow Jesus the way that I follow Jesus. Adopt my practices that are based on Jesus' practices and if you do that, then you will become joyful. For starters, that means most of us need to slow our body down. Hurry is incompatible with the love and the joy and the peace that God has for you. Just Slow the heck down. Then we have to take care of our body. Sleep and eat healthy and exercise and create margin. Then we have to adopt the practices of Jesus with our body, most of which are things we do with our body. Eat a meal with your community and then get time in the quiet, alone with God. Work, give your life to something that matters and then take a day for Sabbath to rest and worship and celebrate, and then put your body in situations where again, joy is the inevitable byproduct. Go to a party, right? Um, host a feast, practice Sabbath, go to the beach for a day, or Savi Island, not that part of Savi Island, the Christian part of Savi Island, right? <laughs> and again, you're like, my pastor said, no, he did not, all right? <laughs> and again, if you do this, you will become a joyful person. It's that simple. This is not rocket science. You're like, you're basically saying, yes, that's it. To summarize, foster again for the win. God has established a created order full of excellent and good things, and it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. That is God's appointed way to joy. If we think we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things, I love, you don't have to be rich for this, just simple good things, and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. Now, how does that sound for the week ahead? There are all sorts of ways to practice celebration, 
right, here's a short list. Music, 10 of the best dollars I spend every month is Apple Music, right? You all have the new single from Childish Gambino, right? If you don't have it, if you don't know, now you know, there's your anthem for summer, right? Singing, dancing, don't tell anybody, laughter, like, ah, oh, what, what comedy does to our heart, storytelling. Why is it that at a, at a wedding or at a birthday party or at a, we just have to stand up and tell a story around a campfire, we just have to tell a story to celebrate our life in God's world. Special events, a birthday, an anniversary, holidays, May the 4th, that's the main one each year. Um, then Christmas apparently is a thing too. Fourth of July, Sabbath, an entire day every single week set aside for celebration. I think Tim Keller was the one who said, because the world is so full of ugly things, on Sabbath is an imperative that we feed the heart with beauty. Man, that you just take a whole day and you just feed the heart with beauty. Gratitude, most mornings I wake up and the first thing I do is just write out a few things on a scrap of paper that I'm grateful for. What that does to rewire my, the neurobiology of my brain, right? The pathways that I travel down in my spare time. Just hang out with joyful people. Like, do you know some joyful people? If not, go out and meet some. Any of you um, know your Enneagram number? You're type seven, anybody? Come on, exactly, you would shout. If I said type one, you'd say, yes, right? Um, that's, yeah. Type, so like just all of my best friends are type sevens. Like I just need help with joy. And so I hang out with type sevens all. They're either like that or like addicted to everything and a total disaster. But if they are healthy, they are the most joy. That's, that's true. You are the most addict prone. But when they are healthy, they are the most joyful people to be around. Just hang out with, if this is a struggle for you, just go hang out with joyful people. Can I buy you a kombucha on tap? I just need to be around you or something like that. Whatever it is. Now, all that to say, still, listen, really, I can't think of a better, better than anything on that list, I cannot think of a better way to practice the spiritual discipline of celebration than by eating and drinking and ideally with your family and God. Right, that was Jesus' go-to practice. We don't read a lot about him singing or nothing about him dancing, but we read a ton about him around a table. Bottle open, little pita and hummus left there, some hot grilled fish. He was actually quite a chef, we read at a moment. We read all of the time, which makes sense. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He grew up, he was steeped in the Torah. Did you know, this is like Bible nerd fact that has, just for fun, for just for the seven. The Torah commanded the Israelites three times a year to throw a seven-day feast, celebration, in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate life in the kingdom of God, right? Here's a command, take a look at this. This is a command from Deuteronomy, all right? Command from the Torah. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So it's an agrarian society, so just say 10% of your income. Eat, now what do you do with it? You give it all away, you give it to the poor? Nope, not this one, that's another tithe. Listen, you eat it. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now if that place is just too far away and you're filthy rich and you can't carry it all, then exchange your tithe for silver. I love this. Take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose, which later turns out to be Jerusalem. Use that money to buy whatever you want. Cattle? 
great, you're a meat, carne asada, okay, sheep, lamb, can't go wrong with that, wine, or other fermented drink, it's literally in the Hebrew strong drink, right, all of you are just gonna abuse that, but whatever, it's there, whiskey's in the Bible, or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat it there, eat your tithe, in the presence of the Lord your God, and what? Rejoice, celebrate, there's our word. Just think about this for a minute. Okay, so what if we were to all pool 10% of our annual income into one giant party just for us? Right, so Bridgetown, just think about that for a minute. So I think Bridgetown's budget, thank you to your generosity, is I think $1.6 million this year. I think we're in the black and you guys are amazing. Now, that said, there are about 1,500-ish people here on a Sunday, more than that, that are kind of a part of our church. Well, the median income in our city is 70 grand a person, right? So just hypothetical scenario, multiply 1,500 by 70, I think it's 105 million. Take a tithe of that, meaning if we were all actually giving 10% of our income to Bridgetown as an expression of the kingdom, if we were all doing that, um, our budget would be over $10 million just for that. Now imagine if we had a separate tithe on top of that one, and we took $10 million and we just threw a heck of a party. <laughs> just for us, no invite to anybody else, just us, right? We have Tusk cater the whole thing, and we fly Chance the Rapper in to perform, <laughs> and kombuchas on tap, and we have like massage in the back, and face painting, and like a ropes course, I don't know. Clearly I'm not in charge of the party, like whatever and we just blow it all on one massive feast to celebrate our life in the presence of God in our city. Now, <laughs> um, if any of you were to suggest that, if, unless if this was in my mind, I most likely would rebuke you. <laughs> Do you not care about the poor, right? Which, by the way, is what Judas said in a very similar scenario. My point is that this is commanded in the Torah. What kind of God commands you, on top of your regular giving, to tithe 10% of your income to a party that you eat, that you enjoy? Like what kind, a God who is the most joyful being in all of the universe. And the point is really, in God's mind, the best way to celebrate is to throw a party and eat some really good food and drink some wine. There's all sorts of science now behind this. Yesterday I read um, The Hacking of the American Mind by Dr. Robert somebody or other. And brilliant book, if you've read that, his basic thesis is that in America we have conflated and confused pleasure with happiness, and it's not the same thing. Pleasure is about dopamine. Happiness at a biological level is about serotonin. Pleasure you get from um, a substance or an experience. Happiness you get from character and contentment. Pleasure in the moment you think to yourself, this feels good, I want more. Happiness you think, this feels good, I have enough. Too much pleasure, pleasure the end result is addiction and death and chaos. Too much happiness, there is no such thing as too much happiness. Like, there's no, there's no such thing, right? And so he says this whole thing about how government and industry have all conspired to hack your mind and addict you to your phone and a bunch of and sugar and a bunch of other stuff. And it's quite dour. It's a very depressing read. But then you get to the end, and he has his little solution for how to survive America, basically, in 2018. You know what he says? He says, basically, it comes down to you need religion. You need a community that you do life with. You need to take care of your body. And the best way to do all three at once is get your friends and family together and cook a, cook a meal and eat it together. I think Jesus said something about that a very long time ago. 
So our practice for the week ahead is all up online. It's very simple. You ready, all of you in a community or not? This is it. You get together with your community and throw a party. Just eat a meal. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to like fly chance in. It's okay. I'm doing that. You don't have to, all right? You just, what, whatever you have, you just party. You just throw, get the barbecue out. You got a kids around, get the kiddie pool, Andy, like whatever. Take them on a ride on the motorcycle, whatever your thing is. Just thank God, sing some worship songs, practice gratitude, tell stories. After all, celebration is a form of worship. And gratitude and praise to God, please do not misread me. What I'm not saying here is like, you know, debauchery is okay or like mild drunkenness. I I get, that's a whole other teaching, that alcohol abuse is rampant in our city. If you don't believe that, just walk through your neighborhood on garbage day, right? And just look in the yellow bin. The level of alcoholism is insane. I have to remember that. I grew up in a teetotaler family, never had a drink of alcohol until I was in my 30s, never been drunk in my life, never had to call an Uber. I have a one drink rule whenever I'm out. It's pretty hard to get drunk on one drink. And um, so I just have this fantastic relationship with wine. It just is like part of my worship. I love it. It's so good. But I forget, man, this is a thing. And I'm, do not misread me here. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. I don't actually think he was a glutton or a drunkard. Right? I'm not saying any of that. There is a world of difference between a party in the world and a party in the kingdom of God. At a party in the world, for example, you go to escape the pain of life. In the kingdom, you go to celebrate it. In the world, you go to abuse food and alcohol. In the kingdom, you go to enjoy it as an act of gratitude, worship, humanity. In the world, you go to sin. In the kingdom of God, you go to become more holy. In the world, you only invite the cool people, the in crowd. In the kingdom, you invite anybody. Everybody is welcome at the table. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. At a party in the world, you go to hide from God. You have to seal, you know, if you've ever been to that moment, you have to seal your mind off from the reality of God because you know you should not be there, you should not say that, you should not do that. Party in the kingdom, you go to press deeper into the presence of God. After a party in the world, you leave with a hangover and who knows what else. After a party in the kingdom of God, you leave with joy. Joy. So that's, that's like your practice for the week ahead. Does that sound fun? Like... Just throw a party, eat, drink if that's your thing. Don't drink if it's not your thing. Just celebrate, right? Now to end, last thought. None of this comes naturally to me. And for a number of you in the room, you know the same is true for you. All sorts of research, and there's some debate over it, but basically right now is saying, as far as scientists tell, that 50% of your emotional disposition is genetic. Some of you just won the genetic lottery, and it's not fair. Some of you just wake up, and you're for the most part pretty happy. Like, it's just kind of how you are. My wife is like that, just pretty sanguine, pretty happy. Some of us are not like that, right? If, I'm not gonna say my Myers-Briggs type out loud, but I've never met another one with my number who was pleasant. <laughs> Hopefully you don't know, and you aren't, and whatever can I say. Like, It's just, for some of us, it's not easy. Most of you, it's open secret, know that I've had a lifelong, ever since I was 18 or 19, struggle with anxiety and depression. When I was 19, hit a really dark spot, was suicidal, was on medication. You learn really fast with antidepressants that numb and not miserable is a far cry from joy. And I know what the deep pit is like. I've spent years there. And um, man, 20-ish years later, 
I feel in one sense like a new man. I look back and I just, I think whenever I read the Psalms like about how God rescued me, that's what I think. I think I, I should be dead. I should not even be alive, much less semi-healthy. And um, man, I'm just so grateful to God. But at the same time, I still have a long ways to go in my joy. This is just not easy for me. And I can't even imagine who I would be without Jesus. I just, I cannot imagine what my life would be like if Jesus was not my template, my true north. And um, my wife always says, you'd be really rich and really miserable. I'm like, is that a compliment or no? I don't think it's either. And I, I am so grateful, but still, I just have a long ways to go. A few weeks ago, I was with my wife on vacation, and I just had a few, it was a great vacation, but I had a few rough days emotionally, and I just said to her at one point, man, I just feel like I've been at this joy thing for two decades now. Will I ever arrive? I, like, I see this vision of myself in the future as a joyful man, and I just want to arrive there now. And I said to her, do you think I'll ever get there? And she said, it's great. She said, oh yeah, I absolutely, I see this vision of you as like old and joyful and at peace. <laughs> and I said, okay. She said handsome too, by the way. Just, I left that one out, but I'm so humble. Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, you do, you see me. And, and, I, and I said, when, when do you think I'll get there? You know what she said? She was not joking. She said, I think by 60. And I thought, I'm 38. That is, not, that is not helpful right now. That is not helpful. God, but the reality is that Jesus is less interested in here's a joy bomb to get you through your day. He's more interested in the transformation of the overall condition of my heart, regardless of my Myers-Briggs type, regardless of whatever Accutane did to me, my biochemistry when I was 17. Seriously, whatever, there's science behind that, it's a whole other thing. But um, whatever my genetic disposition is, the transformation of my inner person to become a man who is joyful through apprenticeship to the most joyful being to ever live. Like that is my future. And even if it's three steps and forward and two steps back, even if it's a bit of a long journey, it is worth every step. And you are invited, wherever you're at on the Myers-Briggs spectrum, whatever your genetics are, whatever your story is, whatever your life is like right now, for some of you right now, joy is in the language of Karl Barth, a defiant nevertheless. It is a tenacious act of the will as an act of worship of the God who made you. And you are invited into that joy. Let's stand together.